the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. At the end of the 1920s, the United States boasted the largest economy in the world. With the destruction wrought by World War I, Europeans struggled while Americans flourished. Then, in a moment of apparent triumph, everything fell apart. It was panic. Sixteen and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. Sold hopelessly, desperately, at any price. The stock market crash of 1929 touched off a chain of events that plunged the United States into its longest, deepest economic crisis of its history. Now, it's far too simplistic to view the stock market crash as the single cause of the Great Depression. A healthy economy can recover from such a contraction. No, it was long-term underlying causes throughout the Roaring Twenties that sent the nation into a downward spiral of despair. New York, the richest city and the richest country in the world, found itself bankrupt. Political. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, an AP U.S. History podcast where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in this episode, The Great Depression. We look at how a newly industrialized nation, on the heels of rapid imperialization, and fresh from victory in Europe, came to a crashing halt after a decade that roared. Upon succeeding to the presidency, Herbert Hoover predicted that the United States would soon see the day when poverty was eliminated. He couldn't be farther from the truth. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? American firms earned record profits during the 1920s and reinvested much of these funds into business expansion. By 1929, companies had expanded to the bubble point. Workers could no longer continue to fuel further expansion, so a slowdown was inevitable. While corporate profits skyrocketed, wages increased incrementally, which widened the distribution of wealth. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with a drum. In fact, during this time period, the richest 1% of Americans owned over a third of all American assets. Such wealth concentrated in the hands of a few limits economic growth. Take, for instance, the Gilded Age. The wealthy in the 1920s tended to save money that might have been put back into the economy if it were spread among the middle and lower classes. But that wasn't the case. And in an effort to keep up with the Joneses, Middle-class Americans had already stretched their debt capacities by purchasing automobiles and household appliances on installment plans. Consumer debt was on the rise. The Wall Street panic, in my opinion, is over. It had to come. Stock speculation had become crazy. 
like an appendix operation, it's a good thing to have it over with. There were fundamental structural weaknesses in the American economic system as well. Banks, for instance, operated without guarantees to their customers, meaning they created a climate of panic when times got tough. Few regulations were placed on banks, and they lent money to those who speculated recklessly in stocks. Agricultural prices had already been low during the 1920s, leaving farmers unable to spark any sort of recovery. When the Depression spread across the Atlantic, Europeans bought fewer American products, worsening the slide. It was a boom time for the stockholder. Stock prices soared to record levels. Millionaires were made overnight. Welcome to the New York Stock Exchange on the eve of the great crash of 1929. Although the 1920s were marked by growth in stock values, the last four years saw an explosion in the market. In 1925, for instance, the total value of the New York Stock Exchange was only $27 billion. But by September of 1929, that figure rocketed to $87 billion. Fueling this rapid expansion, the risky practice of buying stock on margin. Stockbrokers and even banks funded the reckless speculator. Borrowers were often willing to pay 20% interest rates on loans, being dead certain that the risk would be worth the rewards. The lender was so certain that the market would rise that such transactions became commonplace, despite the warnings by the Federal Reserve Board against the practice. Clearly, there had to be a limit to how high the market could reach. So what causes stock prices to fall? Although the workings of the New York Stock Exchange can be quite complex, in fact, it could take up many episodes of this podcast, one simple principle governs the price of stock. When investors believe a stock is good, the value rises. When investors believe the value of a security will fall, they cannot sell it at as high of a price. If all investors try to sell their shares at once and no one is willing to buy, naturally, the value of the entire market shrinks. And such was the case on October 24th, 1929. It was called Black Thursday, a massive sellathon in New York. By the late afternoon, wealthy financiers like J.P. Morgan pooled their resources and began to buy stocks in the hopes of reversing the trend. But the bottom fell out of the market on Tuesday, October 29th. A record 16 million shares were exchanged for smaller and smaller values as the day progressed. For some stocks, no buyers could be found at any price. By the end of the day, panic had erupted and the next few weeks continued the downward spiral. 
In a matter of 10 short weeks, the value of the entire market was cut in half. Suicide and despair swept the investing classes of America. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange in market prices. The stock market crash had many short-term consequences. For instance, banks that improvidently lent money to futures traders to buy stock on margin found that many of these loans would go unpaid. Consequently, a rash of bank failures swept the nation. This had a tremendous ripple effect on the economy. For instance, if a working class family was unfortunate enough to have had their savings held in a trust by a failed bank, well, too bad for them. All of their money was lost. Now is the time to buy. I hope you have plenty of the wherewithal to wade in and buy. As Americans saw banks close and savings disappear, less money was spent on goods and services. Many consumers who had bought the new conveniences of the Roaring Twenties on installment plans were now unable to make future payments. Businesses instantly began to lay off workers to offset the new losses. Many manufacturers and even farmers who had overproduced and created huge inventories meeting the needs of World War I and the Roaring Twenties marketplace were now finding themselves having to scale back with still the same amount of debt. If you buy stocks, buy them with your own money and not with borrowed money any more than can be helped. As the days and weeks of the Great Depression turned into months and years, Americans began to organize their discontent. Bread riots and shanty towns grew in number. Many Americans began to seek alternatives to the status quo. Demonstrations in the nation's capital increased as Americans grew increasingly weary with President Hoover's perceived inaction. The demonstration that drew the most national attention was the Bonus Army March of 1932. By 1932, veterans were donning their khakis again, fighting a new war, the war against the Great Depression. From these jobless men came a grave rumbling that carried to the nation's capital as thousands of ex-servicemen converged on the White House itself. Their cry was, give us our war bonus now. In 1924, Congress rewarded veterans of World War I with certificates redeemable in 1945 for $1,000 each. By 1932, many of these former servicemen had lost their jobs and fortunes in the early days of the Depression, so they asked Congress to redeem their bonus certificates early. Everywhere in the land, demonstrations broke out as the great bonus army swelled its ranks and marched on Washington. Led by Walter Waters of Oregon, the so-called Bonus Expeditionary Force set out for the nation's capital, hitching rides and hopping trains and hiking, which finally brought them on the steps of the nation's capital, 15,000 strong in June of 1932. And although President Hoover refused to address them directly, the veterans did find an audience with a congressional delegation. As deliberation continued on Capitol Hill, the Bonus Army built shanty towns across the Potomac River. And not really a threat to national security, Washington was concerned by their growing numbers and size, and police began to clear the demonstrators from the Capitol. Two men were killed as tear gas and bayonets assailed the bonus marchers. 
Hoover ordered an army regiment into the city under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur. The army, complete with infantry, cavalry, and tanks, rolled into the Anacostia Flats region, forcing the Bonus Army to flee. The army is chasing U.S. veterans. The destruction of Anacostia Flats, raising a wave of bitter controversy, marked the end of the Veterans Bonus Army. But it had etched its name in flames among the milestones of the century. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem went? Putting on the river. Many Americans were outraged, and rightfully so. How could the Army treat veterans who wore the same uniform with such disrespect? Hoover maintained that political agitators, anarchists, and communists dominated this mob, but facts contradict his claims. Nine out of the ten bonus marchers were indeed real veterans. Twenty percent of them were disabled. Despite the fact that the Bonus Army was the largest march on Washington up to that point in U.S. history, Hoover and MacArthur clearly overestimated the threat posed to national security. They even underestimated the political fallout. As Hoover campaigned for re-election that summer, his actions turned an already sour public opinion of him even further bottomward. My fellow citizens, this broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who, through no fault of their own, face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. Urban shanty towns were called Hoovervilles. Newspapers used by the homeless to keep warm were known as Hoover blankets, and pockets were worn inside out to remind people of the Hoover flag. Somebody had to be blamed. It just so happened it was on Herbert Hoover's watch. Running for president under the slogan of rugged individualism made it difficult for Hoover to promote massive government intervention in the economy. In 1930, succumbing to pressure from American industrialists, Hoover signed the Hawley-Smoot Tariff, which was designed, in theory, to protect American industry from overseas competition. Passed against the advice of nearly every prominent economist of his time, it was the largest tariff in American history, and it ended up making the Depression even worse. President Hoover just can't seem to catch a break. The amount of protection received by industry did not offset the losses brought by a decrease in foreign trade. The Hawley-Smoot tariff proved to be an economic disaster. Believing in a balanced budget, Hoover's 1931 economic plan cut federal spending and increased taxes, both of which inhibited individuals' efforts to spur the economy. Hoover also believed that government aid would stifle initiative and create dependency where individual effort was needed. Past governments never resorted to such schemes, and the economy managed to rebound. Clearly, Hoover and his advisors failed to grasp the scope of the Great Depression. The stage was set for the election of 1932. 
Coming up next time on Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. New York Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt won the Democratic nomination on the fourth ballot of their national convention. Roosevelt promised a new deal for the American people. The words New Deal seem to have had a nice ring to it. Election Day brought a landslide for Democrats as Roosevelt earned 58% of the popular vote and 89% of the electoral vote, handing the Republicans their second worst defeat in their history. Bands across America struck up Roosevelt's theme song, Happy Days Are Here Again, as millions of Americans looked with hope toward their new leader. That's next time. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your day to join me for this moment of learning. I'll see you right back here next time. Mm-hmm.